This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It is Thursday, September the 28th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. I will make my own horns and let it go. Boop, boop, boo doop, boop, boo. Coming up on the show today, there's an emerging generation of disability leaders and activists. Rabia Khadr looks ahead to the future of disability advocacy. And a couple of Canadian hockey arenas are introducing check-out free shopping. Mark Flalo gives you the scoop on Amazon's Just Walk Out technology. That and so much more coming your way, including Don Dickinson with a preview of McLean's Magazine, a feature article all about Alberta Premier Danielle Smith coming your way. But the show begins with the top story of the day. Census data shows the biggest population boom since 1957 occurred in Canada. The increase was largely driven by immigration policy. Laura Osmond takes a closer look. Canada's population grew by more than a million people between July 2022 and 2023, a 3% increase. Canada also saw a massive 46% increase in the number of temporary residents. The Liberal government has set record-breaking targets for immigration over the last several years, but doesn't set specific goals or caps for the number of people who come to Canada on temporary visas. The estimated number of temporary residents in Canada now outnumbers the Indigenous population accounted for in the 2021 census. Laura Osmond, the Canadian Press. Ottawa. There's something so wonderful about an on-location voicer. You could tell Laura Osmond did that from the halls of Parliament because you can hear that very familiar ring of the parliamentary elevators. If you've ever spent some time behind the scenes in that building, always fun to have a little bit of sonic texture in the morning. Let's switch over to the housing file. Nova Scotia's government is partnering with Ottawa to fund 222 public housing units. Municipal Affairs Minister John Lohr says the new units will house 522 people. Lohr says there's going to be an equity lens applied to the project. 80 of the new units will be fully accessible, providing safe, barrier-free living for seniors and those living with disabilities. The new units will be built on government-owned land that is close to existing public housing properties in five regions. Housing will be built in Bridgewater, Kentville, Truro, Halifax, and Cape Breton. The province will cover close to $59 million of the project over the next five years. The federal government will provide the remaining $24 million. You know what I love to do with these kinds of stories. Let's pull out the calculator. $83 million divided by 222, 83 million divided by 222, that's the number of units, that's about 374,000 per affordable housing unit. And that's a similar number to what Alberta is spending uh, per unit in one of their own initiatives. I shared that story with you a couple weeks ago. It was also in the high 300s per unit. I think there's been a little closer to 360, but nonetheless, let's 
do a little more math. Let's do this together. You and I will hold each other's hands. The Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation says there needs to be about 3.5 million housing units built between now and 2030 to restore affordability in the market. So here's more math for you. Let's go with the assumption that an affordable housing unit or a housing unit costs about 375,000 per unit. What's 3.5 million times 375,000? What's 3.5 million times 375,000? A little over $1.3 trillion. $1.3 trillion. So if you want to put the housing crisis solely at the feet of governments to solve, provincial, municipal, and federal, that's the cost, $1.3 trillion. Speaking of government spending, the U.S. Senate is moving ahead with a bipartisan plan to avoid a government shutdown this weekend. The House of Representatives still can't reach a deal. Sagar Magani has the latest in the political soap opera. Speaker Kevin McCarthy has tried to get hard-right Republicans to approve a temporary House measure to keep the government running, which Tennessee's Andy Ogles and others have said they will never do. I'm a no and will remain a no. Even as McCarthy insists he'll hold a test vote Friday, Chuck Schumer and Senate leaders are urging him to allow a vote on their bill. It would pass. It would pass. But Florida House Republican Byron Donald simply says no. That thing is dead over here. Are you kidding me? A shutdown would start Sunday, though President Biden says it's not inevitable. Still asked what can be done to avoid one. If I knew that, I would have done it already. Sagar Magani, Washington. Okay, one more story from the economic world. Eckler Consulting has released a report about salaries and wages in Canada. Don Kelly crunches the numbers. The firm says the national average base salary for 2024 is projected to increase 3.9%, down from 4.4% this year. Eckler says while organizations are still grappling with ongoing economic uncertainty and a tight labor market, its survey shows many are projecting salary increases close to recent highs. Alberta, BC and PEI are projecting the highest average salary increases next year, with the highest increases expected in mining, information technology and high technology, and professional scientific and technical services. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press, Toronto. That's your look at the news. Here are the daily polls at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. There was no first hour of the show yesterday, so I didn't get a chance to give you the results of Tuesday's poll. How do you feel about provinces creating their own public pension plans? 0% of you said good, 88.2% of you said bad, and 11.8% of you said bah! I don't care. At Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, at Accessible Media on Twitter, over on Facebook, Carla wrote in, it's ridiculous. So Carla didn't say good or bad. She said it's ridiculous. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Today's Daily Poll, Marco Flalo will be talking a little bit about this later in the program. Two Canadian arenas are introducing no checkout shopping kiosks. They're using Amazon's Just Walk Out technology. Just before I ask you the question directly, I do want to explain this in very, very broad strokes. Marco Flalo will go into details when he stops by later in the show. But essentially, you scan yourself in via 
via palm or credit card when you enter. And then there are sensors and cameras on shelves that track you as you work your way through the kiosk. And then you just walk out with your stuff and get a credit card charge or an Amazon charge. That's like the broadest of broad strokes of how that technology works. Marco Flalo can actually give you a smart guy analysis on that front. But it begs this question. How do you feel about frictionless checkout experiences? Good or bad? At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Alex Smythe, you deserve the credit for this one because you were the person who brought this to the roundtable yesterday. We just didn't get to it, so I'm putting the question to you first. How are you feeling about a frictionless checkout experience? I, I would say good with an asterisk next to it because I have this overwhelming fear that, you know, if let's say you go pick up a, a jersey and there's a sign that says for sale or something like that, and you go pick it up and then you, you walk out thinking, oh, I got it for sale. What if it wasn't actually on sale or mm, what if they got charged mm. the incorrect number? That's always my concern because that happens all the time in a shop. You know, something will be misplaced or or put on a different shelf or a price doesn't match out or uh, that what you get charged. And then you have to first wait for a credit card bill or an Amazon bill, and then you have to try to go back and dispute it. And then when you do go back, are you getting charged for going in and out of the store with a jersey again? I don't know. Those are questions I have yeah. because I've never actually experienced this. But if it works smoothly, if it, it kind of has no kinks like that, yeah, you know, I, I would be happy with it. It's one last thing you have to worry about is once you get all your items, then you have to go and wait in line and wait for someone to come and, uh, you know, check you out and all this stuff. If you can just walk out, great. Alex, I definitely think uh, you identified that well, right? That what if there's a problem here? How do you handle something when it goes wrong? What if there is no human here for me to deal with it? But I, but I do see the merit here, right? I know I say that a lot in these daily polls when I ask these questions. I see the merit and I like the idea, especially because it gives you a little more self-determination when you're doing your shopping experience. You're not going to be behind the person who's ordering seven hot dogs and three nachos and two Cokes and seven iced teas. It's like, no, I grabbed my two beers, I got my thing of popcorn, and I'm out the door, you know? Like, there's really something, there's really something to that one. Amanda Shikarchi, I wanna bring you in on this conversation as well. I know this didn't quite get to your email this morning. We'll figure out that technical bugaboo a little bit later, but how do you feel about a more frictionless checkout experience? I definitely agree. I think it's a good idea because you're saving time standing in the lines and also from an accessibility point of view as well. Like sometimes finding where do you, where's the line, where do you have to pay? Oh, yeah. Like it's a yeah. whole other process when it comes to things like that. But here you get your items and you leave and it's so much easier too, because you know what you're getting and you know, you don't have to worry about standing in those lines and <laughs> all of that. Because right now, like the self-checkout machines that they have, like I haven't personally used one myself. But like whenever my sisters would use it, I'm like, well, I wonder how these would be accessible. Maybe they are. But from my knowledge, like I feel like this system would be even better 
Yeah, the, taking out that touch screen, taking out some of the uh, the middle the, the middle computer there. Uh, I'll, I'll say this. I'll say this on the way out of this conversation. It's something my friend Peter always says when talking about technology and trusting the computers. He says, I will trust more of this, quote, frictionless technology the day the self-flushing toilet understands when it's actually supposed to flush. And that's why my friend <laughs> Peter is such a good radio host out there in Edmonton, Alberta. At Accessible Media is where you vote on on the poll at Accessible Media Inc. is where you can vote on Facebook. So at Accessible Media on Twitter slash X at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. There's the email line, email box, email inbox, feedback at ami.ca, or you can pick up the phone, 1-866-509-4545. Speaking of frictionless, let's do that one more time so I actually talk like a broadcaster. Feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca is the email address, 1-866-509-4545 is the phone number, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, Alberta Premier Danielle Smith is the focus of this week's episode of McLean's Magazine. Don Dickinson will give you a preview. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Alberta Premier Danielle Smith is the focus of this week's episode of McLean's Magazine on AMI-audio. The article takes a critical look at the Premier's political stances and decision-making and asks the question, can she keep the province happy without sparking a national crisis? Don Dickinson has more. Don is the content curator for AMI-audio. Hello, Don. Hi there, Dave. How are you this morning? <laughs> Don, I am excellent. I find Danielle Smith to be a fascinating political character, so I'm glad to have this conversation. The article itself is titled The Unsteady Reign of Danielle Smith, so I think you can kind of tell where Luke Rinaldi is uh, starting from in this conversation. Uh, Rinaldi yeah. describes Danielle Smith as the most polarizing politician in Canada. What did the author have to say about that? Well, I got to agree with you there, Dave. Uh, not only the most polarizing uh, politician in Alberta, but arguably in Canada, uh, thanks largely to her inability to keep her foot out of her mouth and her susceptibility to some truly, and I mean truly, Dave, out there ideas. In the lead up to the campaign, she mused about privatizing hospitals and claimed that cancer is preventable until it reached stage four. She baselessly claimed Cherokee ancestry, that I didn't even know about that one, and refuted the existence of mass graves around residential schools last March on a right-wing social media platform uh, called Locals.com. She trumpeted the fiction embraced by QAnon, of all people, or of all associations, that Russia invaded Ukraine to fight neo-Nazis and shut down U.S.-funded bioweapons labs. So, yeah, she's... Um, 
I, I mean, you probably know more about Alberta politics, but I, I, when I read this article, I thought, Boris, this is a unique individual. <laughs> uh, Danielle Smith is not shy to share her opinions or thoughts on uh, a lot of matters. There's uh, no doubt about that one. So Smith, regardless of maybe some of these controversial political stances, did win a majority government, maybe a smaller majority than the previous uh, Conservative government in Alberta, but still a majority, and the popular vote number was still over 50%. How have Albertans been responding to Premier Smith post-election? Well, as you say, on May 29th, uh, voters basically uh, held their noses and elected uh, Ms. Smith uh, with a smaller majority than any other Conservative government in decades. And now Albertans, Albertans are trying to figure out really which Danielle Smith is going to get the job done. Because... Um, you know, she's been poised. She's been, uh, you know, a, a plain speaking uh, politician, as you say. But she's also been a bit paranoid. She's been a populist who spouts all kinds of disinformation. Um, she, she's also had, you know, provoked a lot of 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 uh, worry, let's say, <laughs> and almost a constitutional crisis uh, to win concessions from Ottawa, and so she. There's a lot of people. I mean, even the cover of the art of the uh, magazine itself says uh, on uh, uh, on the cover it says visionary uh, um, uh, conspiracy theorist, uh, folksy kook. Like they're just they're just throwing it all out there, you know, journalists and whatnot. Yeah. <laughs> because because people like I don't know. Like I say, I don't follow it like you do. I don't know this woman, but from the article. What I read is that, you know, she, she basically says what she has to say to get elected. Uh, there's something to be said, though, about a politician who does speak out and speak openly. The one thing that I think this article failed to communicate, you know, it calls her folksy. I would say she's a great communicator, right? And this is the, okay. this is one of the things that I would say mass Canadian political media does. They underestimate people because they think that, well, their policies are a little bit out there or their beliefs are a little bit out there, so therefore we will underestimate them and kind of criticize them. And an article like this, I think, only will further entrench like the Smith supporters and only sing to the choir of the Smith haters. Um, yeah, when you talk about like, when they say like, kooky this, kooky that it really underestimates someone who has been a pretty great communicator does seem to have her party at least her party in line with her right this notion of like a tearing at the seams of the united conservative party in in alberta that story is like a year old like jason kenney was ousted almost a year and a half ago that that's an old narrative that the mass canadian political media likes to kind of stick with and they, they're doing the same thing to pierre polyev right they, they they're looking at right. pierre polyev and saying oh look at this guy with his out there thoughts except that he's a pretty good communicator he's got a couple ideas again whether or not you agree with the politics there's this mistake that gets made in canadian media over and over again where you underestimate people because you think oh pff, no one's gonna to get along with the idea of an Alberta pension plan, Alberta creating their own pension plan. And I'll admit, Danielle Smith does not help herself when she shows up at the press conference and says, yeah, we do want to create our own and we want to take half of the Canada pension plan to do it, right? So, so I will admit, right, there are these moments of bombast and wildness that maybe undermine Danielle Smith uh, herself, but there is this a flip side of it, which is the mass media should not be uh, writing things like, they're kooky, crazy, and wild, because then you're immediately 
immediately dismissing someone and immediately underestimating someone and only allowing their supporters to further entrench themselves around them as what they might call a rebellious spirit. Mm, yeah, absolutely. On the other far side of that, Dave, you, when you underestimate, you get somebody like Trump get in power, mm -hmm. you know, because everybody said the same thing. You know, there's no way that he's going to get in power. He's in that case and all the rest of it. And and then, of course, we realize that he is in that case. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, so. I'm not going to. You know what? I'm not going to dispute you on that one. I don't care what hate mail comes <laughs> in on that one. Donald Trump definitely uh, constitutes uh, uh, unstable and uh, a bit of a, a, bit, of a <laughs> bit of a nutbag. No doubt about that one. I think I might have used some ableist language there, but I'm comfortable with it. Don, we've only got about two or three minutes here for the next article, but it is an interesting one. It's called Feast or Famine by Jake Legou. The This article is about a third-generation farmer. He thinks the industry needs more skilled labor to survive. Don, instead of sort of breaking this down piece by piece, what are the big takeaways from this article, Feast or Famine? Well, the big takeaway is that, uh, you know, farmers are in dire straits, Dave. I mean, uh, there's all kinds of things working against them these days. Uh, but basically, labor is number one. Forty percent of Canadian farm operators will retire in the next decade. I mean, that statistic alone, oh, my God, that'll coincide with a shortfall of 24,000 workers on farms, as well as in nurseries and greenhouses. And it's not uncommon for retired workers to come back and help out. But, you know, once they get to a certain age, that's that 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 doesn't make any sense anymore. You know, they can't do those kind of hours. They can't do the 12 to, to 15 uh, hour days that it takes. And I mean, farming is a very, very, very difficult mm -hmm. job. Mm -hmm. you know? um, so basically, the report that they did found that Canada has one of the worst skills shortages in food production compared to other major food exporting nations. And worse still, roughly two out of three Canadian farmers do not have a succession plan in place. So it's not good news. And we have to do something about this pretty well immediately. Mm. Don, it, it's so true. When you think about food costs, right, how much has that been a headline the last year? And even longer than that, but over the last year talking about food costs. And part of that is the ability to produce food domestically. And you need farmers to do that. Yep, yep. You need farmers to do that, you know. And, you know, birth rates as well, right? As birth rates in Canada have collapsed over the last couple of decades, uh, you know, the available workforce has shrunk. Mm -hmm. And a lot of, I mean, I, you know, we say this all the time. We talk about this. There's a lot of Canadians that just don't want to work. They don't want to do that hard labor, you know. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we've, we, we've really got to, you know, we, we did that big, big uh, profile with them. Um, the minister, Sean Fraser, when he was the minister of immigration and talking about the fact that we've got to get people into the country to do this kind of work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely. Don, thank you for this. Always a pleasure catching up with you. Thank you for bringing such interesting articles to the table. You're very welcome, Dave. Bye-bye. That's Don Dickinson, content curator for McLean's Magazine. You can find McLean's Magazine weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Coming up next, there's an emerging generation of disability leaders and activists. Rabia Khader looks ahead to the future of disability advocacy. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. This year has seen the loss of prominent disability activists across North America. David Onley passed away in January. Judy Human died two months later. Earlier this month, Stephen Esty from Newfoundland and Labrador passed away. Stephen was a longtime member of the Council of Canadians with Disabilities. Rabia Khadar is an activist herself. Rabia is the National Director of Disability Without Poverty. Hello, Rabia. Hello. So let's start with Stephen Esty. What are your reflections on his contribution to the movement in Canada? Well, again, like uh, David Onley, Stephen has decades of contributions to, uh, for advocating for the rights of people with disabilities, uh, starting out, you know, from coast to coast to coast and globally. He contributed through uh, NEEDS, the National Educational Association of Disabled Students, and then through the Canadian Council on Disability and played an integral leadership role on behalf of Canadians in the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and ongoing advancements of disability rights in this country and across the globe. So he's a tremendous loss to the community. Rabia, it really feels like an entire generation of amazing activists are unfortunately leaving us. But what does that represent for a new generation? What opportunities does that present for a new generation of leaders inside the disability community? Well, the loss is, is tremendous, and, and, and the list just continues on from Sandra Carpenter to David Only, people that I considered mentors and allies and mm. people in positions of power who lifted racialized people with disabilities like me up into spaces of power. This is a tremendous opportunity if we invest in it in terms of cultivating the next generation of leaders from diverse communities who have not been effectively given space in the national disability discourse in this country. Yeah, the, a more diverse disability movement, a greater intersectional disability movement is going to be essential in the new generation. What do you think a more wholesome, intersectional, diverse disability advocacy community can bring to the table? Again, you know, corporate Canada's figured out that diversity is a business advantage. The more people you have with different lived experiences, the more robust your strategies, your plans. And I think we can do wonders on accessibility and inclusion if we truly wholeheartedly adopt an approach of inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. And oftentimes, we compartmentalize accessibility as this standalone approach in systems as opposed to an intersectional approach. It's about time that we bring everything together. And as racialized people with disabilities, we're ready to raise our voice and put our hands in and do the hard work to support that kind of systems change where everybody benefits. We reduce greater systemic barriers and create a more inclusive society for everyone where mm. every disabled person belongs. Not to be too inward looking about this, but 
I, this show a couple of years ago had its own reckoning and realized we need to be part of the solution on this as well, right? And I don't want to pat myself on the back or be too inward looking or think of myself <laughs> as some kind of white savior, but we took the time to say we want to build a more diverse disability team across our production. And we've, we're, we're striving for that. But what do you think other organizations and other groups can do? And again, even looking inwardly here, more broadly speaking, what can organizations do to ensure those voices are included? Again, they need to have a comprehensive equity strategy. They need to invest in that strategy. Often what happens in the nonprofit sector and the broader public sector is diversity is an add-on when you have extra pocket change. There isn't a dedicated budget line. So there are one-off workshops and lunch and learns or conferences that people attend. But there isn't an ongoing lifelong learning strategy applied to, to systems change to ensure equity throughout the organization from the people we support and serve or engage to the people we hire and retain and promote and put in leadership. It has to be a part of an organization's overarching strategic plan to be fully inclusive of everybody and not just do window dressing through, you know, the samosas and the cultural days and the cultural outfits and, and all that kind of lovely recognition potlucks. It really has to be a wholesome and substantive strategy that, that is reflected throughout the organization, mm -hmm. and it's a win-win for everybody. Oh, 100%, for sure, for sure. Inclusion is something that's right on the wall all over this office, and I look at that. I look at that every single day whenever I'm thinking about uh, what we're doing and what we're talking about and what we're trying to accomplish with the show. Rubia, I want to sort of circle back here to the notion of the new generation, this new generation of leaders that are emerging in the community. What do you think some of the big disability-related issues are like are going to be in terms of priority? Because when you talk about maybe that last generation or the old-school generation, they were literally fighting for everything, right? Built environment, poverty, and these are still big-time issues facing the community. But to your mind, what are some of the things the new generation is going to be tackling? Again, they're going to be combating poverty, which is deeper and deeper for disabled people today. They're going to be, you know, battling ableism and ableist approaches and, and medical model approaches uh, to disability that have not gone away. We see that reflected in medical assistance in dying legislation, for example, a little a bit controversial among people, but for many diverse communities, there's a huge conflict with, with that kind of value applied to disabled people in terms of just, you know, life and death and quality of life. So they're going to be battling greater systems change. Things have changed and yet things remain the same yeah. and yet things have worsened.
Yeah, it's one of these moments where progress is not always linear. It's also incremental. So when it's not always linear and it's incremental, it can get really messy and there can be backsliding without even understanding it. Rabia, you mentioned poverty. Now, obviously, you are a huge part of the Disability Without Poverty organization. You're spending a lot of time working on the National Disability Benefit. And you've got a campaign going right now, the Budget the Benefit postcard campaign. What are you hoping for how can people get involved with this? What are the details on the budget, the benefit uh, campaign? Well, we have the law on the books for the Canada Disability Benefit. There's a co-creation consultation process kind of sort of happening that is understated uh, in terms of the approach that was committed and promised in the legislation. The legislation took quite a while to get through the system to royal assent because there were improvements made by parliamentarians on all sides of the House. And now it's time to hold the government's feet to the fire to ensure that there is a robust engagement process with people with lived experience central to the design and implementation of this benefit. That's what we're challenged with today. And the Budget the Benefit campaign is basically calling on government to put their money where their mouth is. The law on the books isn't good enough. We need a dollar figure attached. So there's a national postcard campaign and people can get hard copy postcards through Disability Without Poverty. If they have networks that they want to distribute them to, they can take part in our digital postcard campaign through Disability Rabia, along those lines, I don't know what you're allowed to reveal here, but where are you right now? What are you up to today? I am in a Senate building on Parliament Hill having these very conversations with our lawmakers dedicated to improving quality of life of Canadians with disabilities living in poverty. We're here to remind them that there's a lot more work to be done. Although we have the law, We need to now truly center people with lived experience in the regulatory process, and we still need to fast-track this benefit. Now we are hearing that people aren't going to see the benefit rollout until maybe June 2025. That is not what we were promised. That's not what we expected. Poverty needs to be addressed and needs to be addressed now by budgeting the benefit and giving people with disabilities hope that they can have a life of dignity in 2024. So we are calling on the finance minister to budget an adequate benefit and to budget it now. And we're calling on the system to involve disabled people in creating the rules and the policies and procedures that need to be created in order to get the money to the people who need it most ASAP. The urgency is so, so clear. Rabia, you are the newest contributor on this show. I am delighted to continue this conversation with you every couple of weeks. Good luck today with your advocacy and keep up all the great work with the organization. Thank you, Dave. I'm really looking forward to this. That's Rabia Khader. Rabia is the National Director of Disability Without Poverty. In 60 seconds, Alex Smythe has the weather story of the day. But first, here's Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minute.
Canada's main stock index gave back two-thirds of a percent yesterday, despite strength in energy stocks as the price of oil climbed higher. Toronto's TSX index lost 120 points to 19,435. New York's Dow Jones average dropped 68 points and the Nasdaq added 29. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index tumbled 499 points or one and a half percent on looming worries about China property woes. And our dollar is trading over Overseas this morning at 74.01 cents U.S. A new report from Deloitte Canada suggests the economy's near-term struggles will ease next year as the Bank of Canada begins cutting its key lending rate. The report estimates GDP will rise 1% this year and 0.9% the next. It predicts the central bank will start lowering interest rates next spring, eventually bringing its key rate to 3% by mid-2025. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. Thank you very much, Karen. Alex Smythe is standing by with a good news weather story. Alex, it's shaping up to be a nice weekend in these uh, Toronto neck of the woods. Yeah, Dave. So obviously the major stories continue to be the wet systems out in BC and then the lack of rain elsewhere within the country, especially in Ontario, in Quebec. But instead of focusing on a bit more of those negative stories, I want to look at a bit of the positive and do a look ahead to the Yeah, sunshine, rainbows, love it. Sunshine, rainbows, and warm weather, Dave. So for the Golden Horseshoe of Ontario, you're going to be expecting some beautiful conditions this weekend. So Friday and Saturday, look to be mid to high 20s and sunshine so be sure to get out to enjoy the weekend and that gorgeous weather is set to continue all the way to thanksgiving if the forecasts hold up and if they do dave this would be setting records for the start of october for toronto and the gta if the they're currently predicting 25 degrees as an average that would be the warmest it's been since 1900. In 1900 was the previous record at 24 and a half degrees. This would beat it at 25 degrees. So if you want some, if you're enjoying this warm weather, you want to hold off a bit on the fall conditions, this is good news for you. Get out, enjoy. <laughs> the next uh, little while is going to be beautiful weather for GTA and, and Golden Horse. It's it's good news depending on your perspective, Alex. As yes, I've told you many, many true. times, I run uh, quite hot. And I'm off to mm-hmm. a wedding this weekend in southern Ontario and southwest Ontario in the community of Brussels, not far from uh, Blythe, Ontario. My first ever time in that neck of the woods. So I've got to wear a suit on Saturday. So I don't know if I'm feeling so great about uh, 25 degrees while I'm rocking my suit. We might be looking at an open collar kind of Saturday here. Yeah, Dave, you know, I actually have a wedding myself on the Saturday in Hamilton. So I'm going to be feeling that pinch a bit with you. I may have to, I'm definitely wearing a white shirt to to hide sweat. That's (laughs) going to be a, a key. So it's all about strategy when you're dressing for the wedding. Yeah, <laughs> open collar. I mean, listen, I, I I think I'm at this point where I'm old enough that I can get away without wearing a tie at weddings, but also I still feel guilty about it. I, I don't know what's wrong with me internally. 
Well, there, there's something to be said, you know, depending on the relationship, too. You want to look good. You want to be formal. You don't want to be viewed upon as dressing down for their event. You want to show that you're committed. You're, you want to be uh, respectful of the, uh, the bride and groom's big day. So, yeah, you know, I, I get it completely. Yeah, my cousin's wedding, I kind of did the reverse. I wore a tie, but I went no jacket. I went, I went these like stunning red khaki pants with a white shirt and a nice red tie with the tie clip and my silly uh, straw hat, but no jacket. That was the move that I pulled. But I think this weekend I might flip that, go no tie, but do the jacket and the suit pants. There you go, Dave. And you know, you, you should start doing some fashion advice. Oh, yeah. I, I oh, feel yeah. we would love that... to get some, <laughs> some guys' fashion from Dave Brown. <laughs> How many hoodies can you wear at one time? What is the finest type of cargo short to make mm. your way through the uh, community? Are there such a thing as formal cargo shorts? These are the questions that will be asked in Fashion Time with Dave Brown. Alex, thank you for this. Coming up after the break, the Vancouver International Film Festival kicks off today. Today, community reporter Nathan Clement will have the details. So they call Toronto's film festival TIFF. I wonder if they call Vancouver's VIF. Doesn't quite have the same ring to it. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Vancouver International Film Festival kicks off today. The festival offers the usual films and screenings, but they also offer experiences. Ooh, experiences. Community reporter Nathan Clement has more of the details. Hey, good morning, Nathan. Good morning, Dave. How are you today? Nathan, I'm well. Do people in Vancouver call it VIF? We do call it the VIF. I, I feel like it sounds too much like Vim. I feel it sounds kind of antiseptic. It doesn't quite have like the ring that I want it to have. Has a nice like subtle tone to it too. It's not in your face like a TIFF <laughs> or some of the other abbreviations. It's just nice, subtle, drop a little VIF into the conversation here or there. And it's, it's simple, it's easy. You, everyone knows what it means. <laughs> okay, beyond the name uh, that we maybe disagree on, what separates VIF from other film festivals? What's great about VIF is because Vancouver is such a major film industry here in the city that it's one of the largest in North America. So there's a wide range of films, usually over 70 countries display their own cinema at the event in a, in a handful of theaters at the Seymour location, but also across the city as well. How are they handling live film performances? What are they doing there? This is one of the coolest things added in the last couple of years. So as the movie, as the film's going on, you're having the director speak, you're having orchestras play, you're having the actors act on stage, the actors dub over and just making a real immersive and full environment of just celebrating film, but also trying to push the boundaries of how film is watched and film is displayed. 
September 28th till October the 8th, so a couple weeks here. For more information, you can head over to viff.org, V-I-F-F.org for more information. As Nathan said, there's a couple different uh, theaters being featured here, but there's a main one. The Viff Center is on Seymour Street right there in the uh, downtown core, but viff.org to learn more if you want to uh, check out some films. Nathan, beyond the film festival, the other thing that people are preparing for is the calendar turns to the month of October is Halloween stuff and I'm already dreading the amount of Halloween talk I've got to do here for the next 31 days but bright lights and scary sights the PNE the Pacific National Exhibition is bringing back fright nights so how are they enhancing the Halloween season what's great about fright nights is and we're gonna be talking a lot about Halloween so I hope you're excited um, <laughs> we got a lot <laughs> We got a lot of fun little displays, haunted houses, as well as live actors going around trying to scare you. But it's also a fun environment just where you can go with a family. Um, you can go with a partner, with friends, and just really enjoy a kind of like loose environment, but also uh, practice your vertical leap as well in a few in a few cases. Nathan, I used to have a stronger constitution for horror films and scares. As I've gotten older, I think I've gotten softer, not just from the amount of carbohydrates that I consume, but I just think in general, my soul is a little bit more sensitive. <laughs> How do you feel about haunted houses? My apartment's pretty spooky in itself. So um, I'm always surrounded in a haunted house, but overall, like I've, I've always enjoyed it as a kid. Uh, uh, that was one of the highlights for me around Halloween was going to Fright Nights, but also checking out a lot of the haunted houses around. I had a couple of neighbors that would put on these massive displays and go to the nines every single year and creating these elaborate, deep haunted houses. So it's always been part of my childhood and they're they're quite fun and quite enjoyable. So Fright Nights kick off on October the 6th. So that's the uh, Friday of Thanksgiving weekend on the PNE grounds. For more information, you can visit frightnights.ca, frightnights.ca. And of course, uh, the PNE grounds, East Hastings Street, 2901 East Hastings in Vancouver. Okay, Nathan, sticking with this theme of flavors of the season and Halloween, if haunted houses aren't your thing, there is something else you can do. Richmond County Farms is operating and opening their pumpkin patch for visitors. There's an array of activities for the whole family. So what are the biggest highlights of the pumpkin patch? Obviously, being able to pick out your pumpkin you're going to be using for the month of Spooktober, as well as there's a great access to mazes, horse carriage rides, access to petting and being around uh uh, farm animals, and just overall a bunch of different activities all sprinkled throughout the grounds. So I do like the idea of petting some animals. I've got a real thing for goats. So if I get a chance to pet some goats, that's that's talking my language, Nathan. You can pet all the goats. Okay. All the goats you ever wanted to. <laughs> well, no, I'll, the, go the goat has to let me pet it. You know, I still believe in consent. Yeah, yeah. I believe in consent even for the goats when they, when they want to get involved <laughs> in it as well. Uh, Nathan, one of the uh, ongoing threads this week is fall flavors, right? Pumpkin, of course, is one of the big-time flavors of the fall season. There's also apple in this neck of the woods. I was just singing the praises of locally made apple cider, like non-alcoholic locally made apple cider, which is typically a little bit thicker 
than the apple juice that I like to drink on the day-to-day, but I like to slam about one liter of it this time of year, feel very sick and miserable about myself for a day or two, but it's all worth it for the sake of uh, fall foliage and fun. What's your favorite fall flavor? My favorite fall flavor has to be pumpkin. I'm a big pumpkin guy. I'm I'm West Coast, so everything has to be pumpkinated, whether it's my food, my drink, anything. But to get controversial and to look forward ahead, I I want your opinion. How controversial is it that eggnog's already being sold? Uh, So I'm not a big supporter of eggnog as it generally goes, and I think it's definitely ridiculous that eggnog's already being sold in stores. Kind of like how I feel it's ridiculous that Halloween candy went on sale about three weeks ago at the grocery store. It's like, come on, guys. Like, can we we just, like, hold off a teensy bit with the capitalism? I I saw Halloween stuff in July. Oh, my. So that's... (laughs) That's how deep we're going. That's how deep we're going. <laughs> yeah, people like their Halloween. People like getting dressed up. I, I, I grant people that. Yeah. You know, they, they, can, they can do their thing. Well, Nathan, have yourself a great day. Thank you for this community report. Talk to you in a couple weeks. You as well. Have a great day. That is Nathan Clement with a community report. Of course, you can find all those Vancouver stories and relevant links over on the blog after the show, ami.ca slash now, ami.ca slash now. In about a minute, Amanda Shikarchi stops by with the entertainment report. But first, there is an augmented reality app that aims to improve accessibility for people who are hard of hearing. Mike Dubusky has more in Tech Trends. X-Ray Glass is an app designed to work with certain augmented reality glasses. CEO Dan Scarf says it works by hearing dialogue or conversations. The audio is being transcribed on the phone, and this is then, you know, projecting it onto these glasses. And he says there are applications in the world of translation, too. Well, at the moment, we're obviously looking at uh, translation from English to English, but uh, we also have access to 76 other languages. But there are drawbacks. The glasses must be plugged into the phone running the app to work. Plus, while there is a free tier to the X-Ray Glass app, it doesn't separate out individual speakers. To do that, you'll need to subscribe, which can run you as much as 50 bucks. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. Look at Mike doing a little story there about accessibility and technology. Well done by you, Mike. The hardest working man in the broadcast business. Although, I don't know, maybe Amanda Shikarchi's harder working than Mike Dubusky. Amanda, in today's entertainment report, you've got a story here that intersects entertainment and technology as well. Meta wants to uh, create some digital friends for people on the platform. Thanks, Dave. Yes, I was really fascinated about this story. Meta partnered with influencers and celebrities to play chatbot characters. These characters are based off of the celebrities' personalities. Users interact with these character profiles on Instagram and Facebook. Dwayne Wade is a character named Victor, who is an Iron Man triathlete. Charlie D'Amelio's character, Coco, is a dance enthusiast. Other celebrities include Paris Hilton, Tom Brady, and Kendall Jenner. So, Dave, what do you think the boundaries should be when using AI for entertainment purposes? You know, Amanda, there's something about this story that rubs me the wrong way. I don't know about boundaries. I'm not the person to start putting these things in boxes and telling tech company and people how to live their lives. I've spent some time talking to ChatGPT, putting some questions in, having a conversation. I think it's an interesting intellectual exercise. But Amanda, I'll bounce not your question specifically back 
to you, but I'll bounce this question to you. Who is who was asking for this and like what's the point of this? Yeah, well, um according to Mark, Mark Zuckerberg, he said it's very much for like entertainment purposes and like there are ways to like, you know, you can talk to these chatbots about like different theories and stuff. Um but they're like the facts they have right now are kind of limited and it gets even stranger because soon eventually these chatbots like they'll be their voices for their avatars because right now it just you communicate with them using like text like text writing but soon it'll be the voices which will be even stranger yeah you know the, the voice side of it is where i can maybe feel maybe there's a little bit more of an appeal but again i don't know why like the rock or Dwayne wade or, or paris hilton has to create an avatar like why can't i just talk to Dwayne wade or paris hilton's like true personality avatar like i don't see why why Dwayne wade needs to become what's the name here uh victor like let Dwayne yeah. Wade, like great <laughs> basketball player, be Dwayne Wade. Let me talk to the Dwayne Wade chatbot. I don't want. I don't care about Victor. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely interesting. I I don't know. It, it's sometimes AI is strange when it adds the human component to it. Yeah, I, again, like I said, I, I'm not someone who sits here and fears AI every day. Like, I'll leave that to the other uh, mainstream news shows uh, on in Canadian media, clutching their pearls and being concerned. But what I'll say about this is it's not a pearl-clutching component or like, oh, woe is me, dumbfounded confusion, wow, AI. What I'll say is like, this is kind of nonsense, right? Like, I get what Microsoft is talking about this week, trying to create an AI assistant within Windows 11. I get that Amazon is trying to improve their voice assistant using AI. This just kind of seems like wasted oxygen and wasted energy on a com from a company like Facebook that should really be working on making sure their platform isn't used for any more ethnic cleansing. You know, if you catch my drift... Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. Uh, okay. Amanda, thank you for this. Uh, talk to you tomorrow for a Friday edition of the Entertainment Report. Thank you. Yes, sounds good. That's Amanda Shikarchi with the Entertainment Report coming up after the break. I've got a regional news update, a couple interesting provincial stories for you, and some political drama in New Brunswick. Then Brock Richardson stops by for what I believe will be quite the marathon of topics in the sports chat. I got a lot of things that I want to pick Brock's brain about. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Thursday, September the 28th, 2023. I'm uh, taking some heat behind the scenes here. I mentioned that I watched the season premiere of uh, The Masked Singer last night on CTV slash Fox. And uh, people are telling me that I have bad taste. I'll tell you, our colleagues, Corinne Van Dusen from AMI-audio and Paula Deneen, the manager of live programming at AMI-tv will have my back on this one. This is high-quality programming. Kind of like the second hour of Now with Dave Brown. Coming up in the second hour of the show, a couple of arenas are introducing checkout free shopping. Marco Flalo will give you the scoop on Amazon's Just Walk Out technology. And there's a film review, no, a film preview 
coming your way. Dumb Money captures the story of the GameStop stock craze. Remember that one when a bunch of rogue investors on Reddit were betting against the financial industry using GameStop? January 2021 feels like a million years ago. Still one of the happiest weeks of my life. I loved that story. Entertainment critic Michael McNeely will uh, talk about Dumb Money, a film that I really wanted to go see this week, but couldn't put the time together because I was too busy watching The Masked Singer. Okay, let's start the hour with the regional news update. Starting in British Columbia, the province has released a fiscal update. The forecast deficit for this year has grown to $6.7 billion. The government spent nearly a billion dollars dealing with wildfires this summer. Revenue also went down with the price of natural gas. Finance Minister Katrine Conroy says these numbers will not change any priorities for the government. In challenging times, previous governments pulled back on supports, increasing fees and cutting services. That's the wrong approach. No matter what, we will continue to protect people and invest in the services they need because it's the people who build our province and our economy. Conroy offers more insight on what is affecting the price of natural gas. It uh, created less of a, a, a need for natural gas, but also the United States has a significant supply and, and also they have a um, capacity for storage, so they have significant storage of, of natural gas and, and overall the global, uh, global numbers haven't uh, warranted the increases as such. Over to the prairies, the company at the center of the E. coli outbreak at Calgary daycares has been charged criminally. The allegation is that the company is operating without a business license. John Kennedy has the story. The city of Calgary announced on Wednesday that fueling mines and its two directors will face 12 charges under a municipal business bylaws and a total fine of up to $120,000. Alberta's chief medical officer of health, Dr. Mark Joffe, says the number of E. coli cases have plateaued at 351 and tests indicated the cause of the outbreak was meatloaf and vegan loaf. Calgary police say its child abuse unit has opened an investigation into the E. coli outbreak to determine if there's a criminal element after receiving information from the community. John Kennedy, the Canadian Press. Oof, a lesson I learned in my mid-20s is never consume the mass-produced meatloaf. If you're going to eat meatloaf, make it yourself. Oh boy, oh boy. And over to the Atlantic region, there's some political drama in New Brunswick. Premier Blaine Higgs sent out a public statement musing about calling an election a year ahead of schedule. The Premier thinks there's too much political drama for the legislature to get anything done when it resumes on October the 17th. Liberal leader Susan Holt knows there's drama, but Holt says it's Higgs' own doing. One of the reasons the Premier is hesitant to return to the legislature is, as he said, he's lost the leadership of his team. Um, he doesn't no longer has the ability to lead his caucus and cabinet, and so um, he's considering an election to try and fix that. Green leader David Kuhn is skeptical of Higgs' intentions. Here we are three years, and, and now he's speculating about um, uh, an early election suggesting that he, he can't function with all the political drama that he, he thinks might occur when he's the one who is the instigator of all the political drama. 
The New Brunswick Progressive Conservative Party does hold a majority in the legislature, but it's only by a couple of seats, so there could be some precarious fragility involved there. That's your look at the regional news and a little bit of political analysis from your boy, the old DB. Let's bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat. Brock, you're always the resource to get me out of trouble. Whenever I'm about to get too political, they say, Dave, go to Brock and talk about sports. Oh, I'm okay with that. Okay. I'm okay to be, I'm okay to be your, uh, you're valid to get out of trouble. Totally fine. <laughs> we we'll just get in trouble about sports together. That's yeah, the stakes are lower, though, when you get in trouble about sports. Uh, Brock, let's start in the world of Major League Baseball. A little roundup here. I want you to hold your thoughts on the Blue Jays for one second because something happened last night in the National League. The Atlanta Braves, who are having a historic offensive season, one of their star players, Ronald Acuna Jr., has created a brand new record in baseball. It's the 40 home run, 70 stolen bases club. People have gone 50 home runs and 50 stolen bases before. Nobody has ever gone 40 and 70. Brock, stealing bases in baseball is back. Can we say thank you, larger bases? I think so. Uh yeah, that's that's what that is. I, I, you know what? This is an incredible number, and and it's you know Ronald Acuna Jr. and the Atlanta Braves are just having a wonderful season, as you mentioned. But I honestly would have thought that stolen bases would have been like way up. I'm not suggesting that more people would have pushed for this record, but like from all things I'm hearing, it's not as up high as they would have expected. Sure, the stolen bases have increased this year, but not not to those kind of numbers. And Ronald Acuna Jr. is just showing you why the bigger basis is a better thing. So good for him. Yeah, I wonder if it's going to sort of work itself out a little bit in time here, Brock, because speed had largely been taken out of the game for so long, let's call it for about a decade plus, maybe even a little bit longer, that the value of a stolen base had been eroded by the analytics and more power hitting and base taking, uh, uh, pitch taking for walks. So I wonder if this might actually correct itself a little bit over time. I just want to pull one more stat out for you here in regards to some stolen base numbers in terms of the major league uh, major league leaders. If you look at number six on the list, it's a player named Corbin Carroll, who, oh, that's run scored. Hold on, I got I to pull this up. Come on, Dave, you're better than this. Corbin Carroll is a rookie for the Arizona Diamondbacks who's 23 years old, who has 51 stolen bases, who's also hit 25 home runs. So I wonder if there's going to be a little bit of an evolution of this next generation of baseball players that are going to bring speed back a little bit while still maintaining some of the power hitting priorities yeah i and i and i agree i like seeing when when you know runners get moving and then the second baseman has to go play the base like it just creates so much more excitement for the um the baseball and like if you look at the number you just gave that's still 19 stolen bases shorter than ronald acuna jr which is a lot in my opinion yeah. and, and you know it just shows but yeah i think it's also on managers who have to sort of adapt in a way of like let's just play this out let's just get things moving let's just do this and i think over the years you're gonna see managers kind of let loose a little bit and say let's let's get things moving because mm -hmm. i would argue more often than not you see when the runners um um stealing a base or you you moving around the infield as i mentioned which means there are more holes to hit from and if players 
see that and recognize that you might get more hitting going on. So over the next couple of years, as this uh, bigger base becomes more of a, uh, a regular and a known thing, people are going to steal more. I yeah. really believe. Yeah, I, I believe that too, 100%. Okay, Brock, let's talk about the Toronto Blue Jays. Another opportunity to clinch a playoff spot slipped through their fingers last night with another loss to the New York Yankees. And listen, credit to Yankee starter Garrett Cole. He's probably going to win the American Cy Young as the best pitcher in the American League. But goodness gracious, the Blue Jays, a couple nights in a row, having an opportunity to basically cement their playoff spot. And they're just not doing it, Brock Alon. Yeah, no, I know it's uh, they're really uh, trying to make us all sweat a little bit here. Look, I, when you have a guy like Garrett Cole, who's really dealing and really, you know, making making nice pitches and sometimes the umpire helps you out. Sure. But more often than not, it's he's making good pitches. The only part that kind of makes me worried about this is you're going to see good pitching like this in uh, the playoffs. Maybe not as good as Garrett Cole. Sure. But you are going to see good pitching who are going to hit their spots. And tonight's starter, whose name has escaped me, but he's got like a six-plus ERA. So they should get things rolling tonight. But that's the broadcaster curse that I just (laughs) threw on top of the Blue Jays right there. So we'll see. But I believe wholeheartedly they're going to get this done. Uh, Texas and uh, Seattle play each other for the next four four games uh, to finish the season. So somebody's got to win, somebody's got to lose. So this is good news. But yeah, the Blue Jays really got to get things rolling here if they want to make the playoffs. It's just that's been the story all season, right? Missing opportunities for this team. And although they've played a little bit better the last couple weeks, they start to stumble and backslide a little bit. They've just been struggling with it all year long. Brock, let's go to the world of basketball. You and I don't need to go into specific detail here about star point guard Damian Lillard being traded to the Milwaukee Bucks yesterday from the Portland Trailblazers. Damian Lillard, really good basketball player one of the better point-scoring point guards in the league in his mid-30s on a big contract, but the Milwaukee Bucks are saying, hey, let's go bring in a star. We'll put him with Giannis Antetokounmpo. We're going to sell some jerseys. Maybe we're going to compete for a couple years while both of their contracts are still on this team. But, Brock, there are some reportings and ramblings that the Toronto Raptors were in on this trade. And, Brock, I still can't figure out why the Raptors would make a Damian Lillard trade to trade for a star player in his mid to late 30s when that doesn't seem to align with the window for winning for this team a lot of the reporting that was going on was that you know the the players that were wanted were were og ananobi uh scotty barnes and grady dick and two of those two of those players uh the raptors tended not to want to move from obviously I heard something this morning when I was watching a sports center that said Masai Ujiri is becoming that guy in your fantasy pools that will offer you five trades and then renege at the very end. So there is that little bit of rumor going on. But to me, that's more of Masai just sticking to his guns and saying, no, I don't see the need for this. I I, I don't know that Lillard would have brought them over the edge where you would have said, well, now they're going to, you know, contend for the East. I don't think that's happening. So I think I'm okay with this standing pat the way that it was. I don't even know why they got involved. I don't even know why they were getting involved, Brock. Like that, like that's my question. Were they, were they really involved though? That's the thing. Like we've seen the, the Raptors be reported on, you know, other big players like Kevin Durant comes to mind recently. I wonder when you hear those big names, are they just using the Raptors as like their chip to say, hey, the Raptors are involved in to get to get what they really want and where they really wanted to go. I recognize that, he, you know, 
that's part of the business. But I do wonder how much were the Raptors really involved in this. Yeah. Brock, let's wrap up here on a hockey note. The Calgary Flames, they signed an extension with one of their forwards yesterday, Michael Backlund, a two-year extension worth $9 million, and also gave Backlund the captaincy of the team. So they basically said, Michael Backlund, you're going to stay here for two more years and be a part of this team. Brock, I know people may get sick of me talking about asset management and team building and direction and aligned goals. But Calgary already traded Tyler to Foley this summer because he didn't want to resign. They've got expiring contracts with a player like Noah Hannafin and Elias Lindholm, who are legitimate star NHL hockey players. It's unclear if they're going to resign those players. Brock, I'm not quite sure what Calgary's up to here. Yeah, and the 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 sediment that he that uh, Backlund was trying to give away in his you know press conference was that the team wanted him as captain. The team was calling him. The team was saying, "Hey, you're our captain. You're our guy." And so management sort of listened to that. Uh, it sounds cute. It sounds wonderful. I don't know. I mean, I just think that Calgary's kind of not, as you point out, and aptly so. Um, Calgary just doesn't know where they're going. And I think they could have, you know, possibly moved forward with someone else that maybe they could have signed those two names that you just brought up. They don't know where they're going to be or whether, whether they're going to resign. And so maybe that's their reason, but back oh, then, I'm oh, not sure. Brock, I'm not arguing that they should have given Elias Lindholm or Noah Hannafin the captaincy. I'm saying fire sale. I'm saying you're the Calgary right. flames. It's fire sale time. Right. Yeah. No, and I just, I don't know, maybe for them, it's just like, this is the guy, maybe there's more that we don't see in the dressing room, but it does sort of seem like a weird captaincy yeah. for me as well. Yeah, yeah. Or, or on the flip side, uh, we're going to be proven wrong, and it's going to be the first domino in Lindholm and Hannafin signing contracts, and then I will happily wear the egg on my face. Brock, have a great day. Talk to you tomorrow. Indeed you will. That is Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk. Coming up after the break, a conversation about the intersection of sports and technology. Amazon is introducing checkout free shopping at select Canadian hockey arenas. Marco Flalo will give you the scoop on the Just Walk Out technology. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. A new shopping feature is coming to Toronto's Scotiabank Arena and Calgary's Scotiabank Saddle Dome. Look at Scotiabank getting some plugs here on Now with Dave Brown. Visitors will be able to enjoy checkout free purchases courtesy of Amazon's Just Walk Out technology. Mark Aflalo has some more details on this story. Mark is the co host of Access Tech Live on AMI TV. Hello, Mark. Hello, Dave. How are you? Mark, I'm pretty good. I know Amazon's yeah. been doing a lot of this uh, self, not self-checkout, but no checkout shopping a little bit here in stores. But what are some of the details about how the just walkout technology would work in this context? So this is a variation on their, uh, you know, cashierless stores that have been out 
in the US and the UK, even Australia for many years now. And the way it's going to work with these sporting venues is that you walk in, you scan a card, whatever card you're going to use to pay for, and then you grab whatever you want and you walk out. And using different elements of machine learning and cameras and sensors, it knows exactly what you took, whether you took it and maybe put it back. It'll actually keep track of all that kind of stuff. And as you walk up the store, you get an instant notification saying, this is what you purchased and we're charging your card. It is really that simple. There will be some human beings they call greeters that are going to be there to help people who are a little, you know, a little resident, resident, reticent, I can't speak, to use the uh, technology at first. But it's something that is proven to not only work, but also drive revenue up mm. when they've integrated this in different stores. Uh, Mark, what is what is some of the background here in terms of where Amazon has rolled this out and what kind of results they've seen? Again, maybe the sporting arena is a newer uh, venue for them to go to, but what have some of the reviews been of the uh, no cashier shopping experiences in some of their grocery stores? So this started about six years ago, and as of today, there are 70 Amazon-owned stores and 85 third-party stores across the U.S., the U.K., and Australia that are using the technology to make it a cashierless store. Now, they are using it um, at Lumen Field, which is the home of the Seattle Seahawks. They saw an 85% increase in sales, Wow! and the total sales per game more than doubled. So the experience has been a, a positive one from the shopping side, but an even more positive on the owner side and the revenue side, which is what is driving people to actually use this. Of course, they're going to be trying it out of the Scotiabank branded arenas in Canada. And I think it's something that we'll see appear more and more yeah. after they see the results of what's going on here. There's a consultant whose name is Kevin Brilliant, that's his actual name, who specializes <laughs> in maximizing monetary gain at sporting events. And he's talked a lot about the frictionless experience for a consumer or a customer. And one of the ways that a lot of sporting teams are making money is through beer, food, Coca-Cola, like all of these sales of concessions. Yeah. You spend a lot of time around hockey arenas, Mark. What's the value that you see in introducing a technology like this more broadly in arenas or stadiums? I think everybody will probably agree that the biggest point of friction in any arena or any venue, whether it's concert, whatever it be, is the lines. Yeah. Whether it's the lines for a bathroom or the lines for concessions or the lines for merchandise. And I think if we remove that barrier and we allow people to access things like this so they can literally just walk in, get what they need and get back to their seat and not miss a moment of the action, you're making it a better experience for everybody. You think about concerts, if they did the same thing with merchandise, and this is something they're experimenting with concerts where you can you know, have merchandise stands really even outside the actual venue itself so you can get it either beforehand. Some, some bands are actually letting you buy stuff online in advance so that you can have it when you go to the Concert. Oh, interesting. All of these things are designed to help reduce that friction. I think it definitely, definitely helps. I don't remember if I told you this story, but I went to see Metallica at SoFi Stadium in, in Los Angeles, and I was standing about to get into line to get some dinner. And a woman approached me with an Uber Eats shirt on. She said, you know, you know, you can Uber Eats your food. And I was very confused. I thought like I would order McDonald's <laughs> to the arena. Like, what? how does this work? And she's like, no, open the Uber Eats app. And one of the locations is that concession stand. And you can go through the menu, pick what you want, and they'll call your name and they'll call your number when it's ready. And you just go pick it up. That was an incredible experience for me. I didn't have to stand in line. I didn't have to worry about, am I going to miss something in the concert? It was just, again, a frictionless experience. And I think the more they integrate these things, the better the experience is going to be for everybody. Yeah. If they can only add more doors to the venue, <laughs> then maybe it would be a lot easier. But 
even there, we're getting touchless and, and, and there's a lot of things happening. Yeah, there's always going to be a sense when something new gets rolled out in a stadium or an arena, there's going to be a learning curve, right? People are always going to have a little bit of difficulty with it. I know that when I went to an event at the Bell Centre in Montreal earlier this year, I was up in the uh, up in the nosebleeds where I belong, up there in the upper deck. I don't belong down there in the good seats with the good people. I belong up with the yeah. shady folks at the top of Agreed. the building. Yeah. But what they've started rolling out is, is this, not this Amazon experience, not this frictionless experience, but basically it's little dependers, little convenience stores around around yeah. the upper deck where you just pass through and you grab like your couple beers or your Coke or your, or your popcorn or your hot dog. It's all kind of there on either heating plates or whatever it is and you grab it and you pass by the cashier and you pay. So instead of waiting behind someone who's ordering 77 items, they can work through the store at their own pace. I can work through the store at my pace, pay for my stuff and bada bing, bada boom, I'm out of there. Like there's a lot of really interesting ideas being played with yeah. in the stadium and arena setting. I love the idea of just being able to order to your seat. I think that is a little um, under under tested. I think that if we all had the opportunity, not just platinum seats where they bring you food to your seats, but if if there were little areas throughout an arena or a venue where they had food accessible and you can just say, this is my seat number and it goes to the one closest to you and it manages the queue accordingly. I think that could be a really cool experience too. Yeah. But these are all things that people are trying out in different places and they got to test it out and see what it works in one place and, and, and not the other. But I think it's definitely all things that make our experience as a consumer better at the end of the day. So it's great. I, I want to share one more item that this Kevin Brilliant talked about on a podcast that I listened to uh, last year about the sporting fan experience. You know, there's a lot of people who really enjoy the marketing materials, the bobbleheads or the free t-shirts yeah. or like the little poster. But what he implemented at Chicago's United Center, at least I think it's still called the United Center, was instead of being given that item, the second you walk through the door, you're given a voucher. And if you want the voucher, you take the voucher. If you don't want the voucher, you just move on so that you can go pick it up after the game. Because what, what his research found was exactly that. People who would get like uh, concessions and other sales went down substantially on bobblehead nights or giveaway nights because people had to schlep around the thing throughout the entire concert or the entire game, and they had less hands to buy things. And sometimes you, you think about this stuff in, in ways yeah. that, that maybe other folks hadn't perceived before, and I really do think there's something to this idea. You, you stated the number of what's going on at the Seattle Seahawks Stadium. If people can just grab stuff and go, if it's convenient, if it's easy, they're going to spend more money. Yeah, leave our hands free so we can drink the beer and, and eat the hot dogs and spend the money, the, the, the spend on the items and make them the most profit. Totally with that. Yeah. I'd love to honestly even even not pick up the bobblehead after. Send it to my house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, that's uh, that you fundamentally understand my sporting event uh, style uh, hot dogs and beer. Oh, I that's, do. Uh, you, you, you understand. You deeply <laughs> understand me, Mark Aflalo. Uh Mark, you are the co-host of Access Tech Live. It hits the airwaves again today, noon Eastern time on a AMI-TV, what do you and Stephen have cooked up for today? We are going to be joined by Sean Priest, number one, and Ooh. debuting season two of Sean of the Shed, the video podcast. That's number one. We're going to be talking all about Meta's announcements yesterday, about the new MetaQuest 3, their new conversational AI, and of course, their new, uh, new Ray-Ban stories, sunglasses or glasses in general, and, and lots more fun. I mean, you enticed me with Sean Priest. When I find out there's an opportunity to get Mark Aflalo, <laughs> Stephen Scott, and Sean Priest together, you've got me sold. Mark, thank you for this. Have a lovely day. You too, Dave.
That's Mark Aflalo. He's one of the co-hosts of Access Tech Live. You can catch that show Thursdays at noon Eastern time on AMI-tv, and you can find Mark Aflalo in beautiful Montreal. You can find The Pulse on AMI-audio this Saturday on The Pulse. Joita Gupta chats with author Julia watts Belzer. Together they discuss her new book that examines the relationship between disability and spirituality. That's The Pulse, Saturday at 10 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio. You can also find The Pulse on demand on your favorite podcasting platform. Coming up next, it is a film preview of a film that I am deeply excited to see. It's Dumb Money. It captures the story of the GameStop stock craze. Entertainment critic Michael McNeely has a preview, but first, no need for the Muzak. Here is the Parasport update with Greg Westlake. Hello, welcome back to the Parasport update. I'm Greg Westlake. Along the sunlit Galatian shores in Western Spain, the 2023 World Triathlon Parachampionship surged forward. Three Canadians participated in the three-day championships. Continuing his dominant form, Stefan Daniel picked up his 41st career medal, winning silver in the men's paratriathlon, standing five. While in the women's PTS5, Camille Fernet placed fourth. Completing the contingent for Canada, Leanne Taylor finished fifth in the women's paratriathlon wheelchair. The podium and top five performances carry tremendous weight as Paralympic qualification points are worth 75% more at World Championships than at World Cups or World Series events. Staying in Spain, preparations for the Para Pan Ams continue for the men's senior wheelchair basketball team as 11 athletes land in Bilbao as the games approach just 50 days to go the opportunity to get valuable training time is crucial. The camp runs for five days with a series of practices and games in the Basque region. Canada is set to compete against the clubs Bilbao and Burgos. The training and the matches provide the coaching staff with the best indications as the final roster moves closer. And that's our time for this edition of the Parasport Update, presented by AMI-audio. Check back next week for more news from the world of adaptive sports. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Dumb Money has been released in movie theaters across Canada. The film captures the story of the 2021 stock craze over GameStop shares. Entertainment critic Michael McNeely wants to tease the film, and I'm delighted to talk about it. He is sitting in studio alongside his intervener, Jill. Hello, Michael. How are you doing today? Michael, I am doing well. The movie is available in select theaters, but it's going to have a wider release this coming Friday. You've been meaning to watch it, but hit a couple of roadblocks. What happens? Well, I think what's happening, Dave, is that a film takes a while to get captioning, which is kind of silly, because this film was advertised as having captioning at TIFF. So I think what happens is the movie usually comes out for the audience first, and then they figure out the captioning a week later. So I just wanted to highlight that today by this segment in the hopes to talk to Cineplast to get them just to release the captioning at the same time as they release the movie. But what you said may have something to do with it, because you said um, it's going to be released to general audiences. So maybe that's why the captioning comes out at that time. 
Yeah, a little bit of a staggered release. It's actually a movie that came a little bit under the radar. I think I only saw a preview for it about 10 days ago, but I was sucked in right away because I remember January 2021 and the wild week that was the GameStop stock craze alongside a bunch of uh, rogue investors. What do you find so interesting about that story of Robinhood investors pumping up a stock and doing options trading? I was just wondering if you covered it during that time. Oh, 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 yeah. I covered it extensively. So, I mean, this is interesting because I always say history is yesterday. So, I mean, we can always study what happened yesterday. I've always enjoyed doing that. And this is a fairly recent story, as I mentioned, in January 2021. I think it was a clash between the financial gurus and the lay person or the lay investor which was using, who was using Reddit at the time to get financial advice or trying to find their own, find their own uh, recipes for success in the stock market without having, you know, massive subscriptions like Bloomberg, which cost uh, 25K just to get the financial information. So really you have this David and Goliath story going on where the, the Goliaths are just the ones that are used to doing things as business as usual. But that's always been a problem since the 2008, you know, financial crisis, and even the financial crises that were occurring during the COVID pandemic. So that's the Goliath versus the Davids. And the Davids are just, you know, teenagers or young adults just figuring out what their daddies are doing in the, in the Wall Street and doing it better. Yeah, it's it's institutions versus humans, right? The human experience and uh, entrenched institutions, which, as you say, David and Goliath. It's a fascinating story. What do you think about the quick turnaround on this one? I don't think we typically see a movie that gets uh, based off a based in real events or based on true events that gets turned around within less than two years. Oh, there was that Thai um, cave disaster oh, with yeah, the boys. Yeah, yeah. That was fast. But what's interesting, though, is the Thai cave disaster, which we covered, um, had two documentaries. This one actually has five documentaries. Wow. And, and a feature movie. So I think it's, it's interesting. I think, I think part of it is the, um, the inspiration from the big short, that movie, and people wanting to learn about the financial crisis, and people wanting to learn about what it means to be involved in the stock market and that kind of thing. So I think there's a hunger for that. There's a hunger for Wolf and Wall Street and Wall Street and all those kinds of movies. So I think they figured, you know, the next thing we're going to talk about should be interesting to a large range of people, but still financial. And that's the game yeah. stuff then. I, I, the, you mentioned uh, The Big Short. I would say that is one of my favorite movies ever, 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 ever. I thought it was brilliantly done, and it featured a great ensemble cast. So put together good writing, great ensemble cast, and all of a sudden you're really cooking with fire. This film, Dumb Money, also brings in the ensemble cast. Who's catching your attention as you're preparing to go see the film? What to do is such degrees from Marco Warby. We have America for Iowa, who is in this movie, and who was in Barbie as well with Marco. Um, I know Andre is going to talk to me today about making references to too many movies, but once I start, I can't stop. When, when it's Barbie and Margot Robbie, I am going to allow it. Yes, fair enough. <laughs> so we have America for Iowa playing a nurse. I think it should be perfect for a nurse. And as you as know, nurses were very, still very much impacted by the COVID crisis. 
Um, and so I'm imagining this nurse is having trouble financially, and she's interested in the stock market without much experience, but trying to understand what's going on. And through that character, we'll understand ourselves. Um, Paul Dano is the main star here. And I will always remember him from, uh, let's see, Little Miss Sunshine. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and so Paul Dano's got this weird, charismatic energy. I actually thought he would be in Blackberry. Oh, God, I'm really falling over the yeah, edge. Now, you, now you're making too many references, although I also liked Blackberry. That was a good movie this year, too. It's true. But we did cover Blackberry, so that could be an advertisement to the earlier section. But um, <laughs> it's just a nerd type. You've got long hair. You've got, well, he's playing, um, I forget the name of it, the, the, the webcaster that he is. It's Kitty something. He, he really loves kitties. It's a true person. And so he loves cats and his advertising and stock market tips at the same time. And so this was an influencer vlog that was caught in the crossroads of the GameStop scandal because he all of a sudden just stopped appearing and people thought he had some insider information. So I'm, I'm really curious to see how they do that. But when I was talking to Andrew, because I saw the movie last Friday, and she said it wasn't enough of Paul Dano's um, acting skills. So that makes me think okay. that this is more of a talking heads movie than an actual acting movie. I got to talk to Andrika Delanerol after the show, our senior producer. She went to go see two movies last Friday. She went to that Much Music documentary as well. Andrika, keeping busy over there on your weekends, no doubt about it. Michael, what's the uh, critical buzz around Dumb Money? Like I said, it snuck up on me. Only about 10 days ago did it pop onto my radar, and now it's deeply, deeply on my radar. I wanted to go see it this week, but I just couldn't get the times to work based on my schedule, watching too much of the uh, Masked Singer as it was. But Michael, what's the critical buzz around dumb money? Well, that's funny because that's almost a reflection of what actually happened to GameStop. It appeared on people's radar. They didn't have much time to respond to it. And then they went into it full-fledged. So I think that's generally the idea. It, it was that TIFF, people left it there. People thought it might win the people's choice, but it didn't. We'll, we'll talk about that movie some other day. But um, I think there's this, it's, it's filling that gap that was, that was left behind by the big short and other financial movies. We don't have a Wall Street for this generation, so this, this might be something like that. The greed is good, mm. but, you know, it's, it's something that happened to everybody. It's something that touches on, touches on nerve, because I think sometimes when we were in the pandemic, we didn't really know what was going on. And so this is a story about how we can understand some of the history that we experienced. Yeah. Yeah, but you're right to identify that, right? That basically every couple of years, there's some kind of financial hiccup that is worth a conversation, whether that was the dot-com crash of the early 2000s, the housing crash, the Great Recession of 2008, or maybe even a really narrow story like this, it speaks to the ongoing fascination with the levers behind the macro economy, right? It, it, people watch movies like this and maybe come out of it feeling, I don't want to say feeling smarter because that's really condescending, but they maybe just feel like they caught a glimpse of a world they don't understand, which is kind of why we go to movies in the first place. Well, I think that's important, I think, especially when you talk about victims of domestic violence or financial abuse. There are many people that have not been given the opportunities to make financial decisions for themselves. And I know that investing in the stock market is a far reach for many, but it's those kinds of movies that could help people down the road be more financially illiterate and understand what's going on and be able to 
maybe stand up to their partner and say, don't invest in this and just share the money amongst our family, please. Because, mm. you know, stock markets can be like gambling as well. <laughs> Especially when you get into the uh, side element of this movie, which is not just buying stock, but making uh, options, bets, puts and puts and shorts, which is a whole different conversation. But maybe let's leave that to the uh, big short to explain to folks when they get the opportunity. Michael, thank you for taking the time to stop by this morning. Thank you for this preview, this teaser of Dumb Money. Yes, and remember, we did not give financial advice, we gave movie advice. <laughs> I sometimes give financial advice on the show. Michael, thank you for this. Have a great day. You too. That's Michael McNeely, entertainment critic. Dumb Money is currently available in select theaters with a wider release this Friday, September the 29th. You can follow Michael on Twitter, also known as X, at Michael D. McNeely. At Michael D. McNeely. McNeely is spelled MC. N-E-E-L-Y. Coming up after the break, Alex Smythe has the round table for you. What animal is the biggest nuisance to you? I will once again get the opportunity to talk about the skunk that prowls the pathway between my apartment and the office. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Now with Dave Brown, it's almost over. It's okay, though. There's more great live programming coming your way on AMI-tv. Mark Aflalo, Stephen Scott, and Sean Priest will hit the airwaves with Access Tech Live at noon Eastern time and then at 2 p.m. Eastern time. I like to call it the main event of the day. It's when Kelly and Ramya hit the airwaves on AMI-tv, and Ramya Amuthan is the co-host of that show and can offer up at least a little bit of a preview and a moose-boosh of what's coming up on Kelly and Ramya. Good morning, Ramya. Dave, I always consider you the main event, so oh, that's very generous of I, you to wait till 2 p.m. for the main event. At My best, goodness. at best, I'm the curtain jerker. I'm, I'm, I'm the, I'm the hamster that slides down the slide first and makes sure the water isn't poisonous oh. from the little water jar. Please, never, never. For those of us who wake up at 6 a.m., you are the main event. <laughs> that is not you, though, right? No. <laughs> you, you know, you, I'll catch a repeat. You, you got an email from me this morning at about 5.15 a.m. Eastern time, so I think you have a sense of uh, when I start prowling the grounds. Yeah. Yeah, your days are much different. Than <laughs> little, 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 teensy tiny bit different. Teensy tiny bit different. <laughs> uh, Ramya, what's coming up on the main event at 2 p.m. Eastern time this afternoon? <laughs> well, we do have our conversation with Chef Mary Mamaliti, and uh, today we're talking about make-ahead snacks for those busy weeks. Oh, so man. some of us know exactly what that feels. Fall's a busy time of year all around, so we should be probably uh, taking in all the snacks we can. A woman was rescued from an outhouse toilet after climbing into a tree with her Apple Watch, and <laughs> Jeff Ryman's going to okay. talk more about how that Apple Watch <laughs> saved her on what in the world. Yeah, these are the kinds of headlines he brings up there. And <laughs> Of course, we're going to continue with Wonderlust today. That's the uh, Apple event that happened a couple of weeks ago, but Michael Fair is not done talking about it yet. And today, I believe the conversation will be more about the iPhones. Last time it was about the um, uh, Apple Watches. Okay, all right, a busy show. And you can always tell when Jeff Ryman puts his fingerprints on on your show as the senior producer. Always, always with the porta potties with Mr. Ryman. <laughs> 
<laughs> Always with the what in the world. Always with the what in the world. Okay, Romeo, that sounds great. Don't go anywhere, though, because Alex Smite sort of has a story here from the what in the world file for you, myself, and Nazreen. Yeah, Dave. Uh, moose caused chaos and transit shutdowns for hours as it wandered through Stockholm's subway lines. Charles de Ledesma has the story. Oh, maybe uh, we don't have that audio clip. Said, Sorry. The moose wandered oh. for several hours, and the number of stations that were shut down gradually increased. The animal had moved back and forth very quickly. After failed efforts to catch it or make it leave the enclosure, the moose turned around and ran in the opposite direction before meeting its death at Varby Guard at about 3 p.m. local time, after which the traffic slowly resumed. So obviously it's tragic that the moose had to be killed in this situation. They had tried to corral it, tried to get it to lead the area, but it just wasn't cooperating. However, I think it's fascinating to think how a moose managed to get there in the first place. It's such an unexpected animal encounter, obviously a moose on the subway line. You'd never expect to see that. Uh, so, you know. I they, they make moves, man. We we uh, we had a, we had a, a moose Ottawa incident a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. where a moose came out of the Ottawa River and was hanging out on the Ottawa River Parkway for uh, the majority of the day. And once again, it ended tragically because they had to put the moose down, and local residents were in an uproar. Yeah. So this is kind of they got, they got, their, they got, their, they got their antlers in a bunch, if you will. Mm, there you go, Dave. But I, I, this is where I why I wanted to bring this this topic forward, this conversation. I want to talk about unusual animal encounters that we on the round table have experienced. So I want to open it up. Let's bring in Nizreen. I'll let you start off. What unique or unexpected animal encounters have you had, Nizreen? I think the weirdest that I've had was when I went to Mexico last year and we went to a restaurant and they had open windows and all of a sudden they all of a sudden some crows came in and they just kept coming in and just staring at us and just hanging out near us while we're eating and then all of a sudden ant eaters or what i think were ant eaters they looked like ant eaters but they called them something else but they looked mm, i don't want to say disgusting but the word fits uh so i just <laughs> <laughs> I I was so baffled at that point because we're just eating like fancy food here and all of a sudden these animals just come in and they're just hanging out and everybody's acting all normal like it's you know it's just another day in Mexico so that was that was a weird weird day. Okay, all right, that's Nizreen's answer. So anteaters and crows uh, getting in the way of a nice dinner in Mexico. Ramya, what about you? What are your odd animal encounters? I actually did have a crow steal a samosa out of my hand in Whoa. Sri Lanka. Whoa. It was giant. It was giant, guys. Like, if you, whatever you're thinking of a crow, imagine that, but like 10 times bigger. I actually couldn't believe that it was a crow. I was... Uh, that was happening like this was happening with because i was walking around the beach minding my own business and the samosa just flew out of my hand i fell backwards i thought that i had blacked out like that's how confused i was and i got up i hear my mom in the distance just like roaring with laughter and she's like that was a crow in case you were wondering but anyways that's not my weird story my uh story is that i am i'm not a fan of raccoons there's too many around the city oh man and Oftentimes, my very social golden doodle wants to socialize with any and every kind of animal. He's introduced me to foxes. He's almost introduced me to other um, 
like coyotes, right? Other canines, but the the raccoons are what really get him, and he drags me along all the time. And now I can't even assume that whatever he's introducing me to is another <laughs> human or a dog. I assume it's going to be something terrifying, like. A, a rabid raccoon or something. Glizardo is a very, very friendly animal. And yes, Way sometimes with that friendliness comes the uh, dangerous element of taking his uh, legally blind owner uh, exactly. into uh, very unique situations. Uh, Ramya, I've got a very positive relationship with the raccoon in my backyard oh. on my green space. He, uh, Rocky, he will sometimes, when I'm out there, uh, rub his body up against my ankles for like a back scratch, which I'm not super Get cool out. with. Like, <laughs> I'm trying to encourage him to stop that behavior, but he seems to like me, and I, I kind of like him, but things are getting a little close for comfort. Uh, I've also told the story of my frequent encounters with the skunk in the pathway between a home and work that I walk up in the morning, and I've always said, if I get skunked, if I get stink-tailed, it's going to be a problem because the control room's going to have to get the skunk off and start tomato-juicing me, which might actually be an <laughs> HR violation on top of it, so everybody's in trouble at that point. Uh, Alex, if I I seek out the odd encounter with an animal. Does that still count as a weird encounter? Absolutely, Dave. I mean, a, a raccoon coming and rubbing up against uh, your ankle, I would say that is unusual. Oh. You don't really expect that. Oh, I'm going deeper than a raccoon encounter, okay. though. I'm talking about oh. when I went to a state national park in Florida and sought out uh, uncaged free-range alligators and was oh hanging gosh. out next to them in their little swamp land uh, for little selfies and pictures. Apparently, if you're on land, the alligator's not going to give you too much trouble. So I probably got a a little closer than you're supposed to get to the alligator, but he was right in the middle of the pathway. What else am I supposed to do? These Dave, that is Florida for you. Leave him alone. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> that is Florida. I mean, from when I've been down to Florida in the past, I, I remember just, yeah, you would see alligators just chilling out on the grass and stuff like that by the water. They seem pretty chill. I don't want to get too close to them. I, I, I value my limbs and, and, and my life a bit too much from that, but yeah, they, hey, to each their own. They're my spirit animal. They're lazy until they're hungry. <laughs> there you go, Dave. Yeah. For, for, so for me, speaking of lazy and, and hungry, um, so one strange, unexpected encounter. I was getting ready to go to work years ago, and I, I left the house. It was a nice, beautiful, sun, uh, sunny summer morning, and I, I'm getting on my bike, and I just look back at my house, and all of a sudden I say, oh, there's something black on top of my roof. Oh, it looks like a garbage bag or something. No, it turns out it was a turkey vulture that was just uh, propped up oh. on my roof. So it's like... That can't be a good sign that a turkey vulture is just hanging out on top of my house. It's like, uh, thankfully, it was it wasn't a bad omen or anything. Nothing bad happened. No, uh, no, no issues there. Uh, the other one I I always distinctly remember was when I was working with uh, in Edmonton for AMI. Uh, we were driving to a shoot in the south of Edmonton. It was this new development uh, area, lots of houses right on the midst of farmland. And we we're driving, and it was probably about 8 a.m. in the morning. And we look out to the field, see this massive black figure just walking, some sort of creature. And it's like, what is that? Is that a duck? No, it's no way too big to be a duck. It was a wolf. It was a wolf just oh, like wandering oh, in an open God. field, midday, like early morning. The sun was up and everything. And you got developments and backyards and houses like maybe 20, 30 feet away from, from where it was going. It's like, oh boy, I'm glad I don't live there because I do not want to come up close and personal with a wolf like that. There uh, are
are rattlesnakes in Ontario. You you guys are mm -hmm. familiar with this, right? Nizreen, you're familiar that up there in the Barry neck of the woods and probably not too yep. far from you in Guelph, there, there are rattlesnakes chilling. Oh, I bet. I bet. I have never encountered uh, with one, but um, I bet. Uh, one animal uh, that I can't stand and I will never understand when people have pets, and I and I get it. Some people have worse pets like snakes and, and things like that. But I can't understand when people say that they have rats as a pet. I don't know if it's just me, but I don't get it. Okay. The, it All freaks right. me How about out. hamsters, guinea pigs, mice? They're different. They're cousins. <laughs> They're they're all they're all part of the they're all part of the rodent family though. Yeah, yeah but like, is it the look? Is it about rats? Maybe. Is it the size? I think maybe. Good? Is it the stigma? Because they're just trashy all over the city. All over. Maybe it's cities? the tail. Yeah, that and the yeah yeah. <laughs> I say the, the furriness. Yeah, it's the lack of fur. It's the lack <laughs> but, of fur. But they apparently make good pets, so that's the thing. I had a friend of mine who had a, a I heard. Pet rat, and they're apparently intelligent and and very clean. Well, I don't make good housemates when they're not pets, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You like you have to be very intentional with your desire yeah. to have a pet rat. I want to circle back to this notion of rattlesnakes, though. Uh, how grateful are you, Alex, that we live in a place where it's so cold that the majority of the poisonous animals don't survive the winter? Mm-hmm. Very grateful, Dave. And yeah, the Massasauga uh, rattlesnake, I, I do not want to encounter. Um, but yes, I'm, I'm very glad we're not in like Australia where there's all the venomous spiders and, and snakes and other insects that you have to worry about every single time you go out. Yeah, someone or... was trying to convince me to travel to Australia last night. And I was like, okay, if we do, you got to check the shower for me every time before I go in. And they were like, oh yeah, of course I would do that. I'm like, when I need a shower at 6.30 in the morning, you're not gonna get yourself out of bed to check my shower, and then I'm gonna die of spider bite. Ramya, I heard an affirmation from you there too. You strike me as very grateful that we live in a place where the cold weather kills all the poisonous things. Oh yeah, we're so privileged. Like all of my encounters with reptiles, you know, snakes, and other things I have to do with the zoo or the science <laughs> yeah. center, you know, like I could just go and <laughs> hang out with the Python and that's pretty much it. Yeah. Pick your spots, pick your battles when it comes to these kind of scales. Okay. That's it. That's all the time there is for today. Thank you, Ramya. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Nisreen. Thank you out there in listener land and the viewer vortex until tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.